This is part two of the final episode of Boston Venue, The Channel Story, the not-so-grand finale. In part one, the channel's financial woes had taken their toll, and the only option left was Chapter 7 Bankruptcy. In the beginning of 1992, there was still a big channel logo on the waterside of 25 Neko Street. But the premises were under the control of a federal bankruptcy trustee. Everybody was scrambling to find out when the auction would be held and where and what the terms were going to be. A first bankruptcy auction was held on March 3, 1992. In attendance were five bidders, including Don Law and Patrick Lyons of the Red Eye Corporation, Glenn Keane of a company called The Channel Group, and Roland Wheeler, Stephen DeSauro's stepbrother and a contractor from Providence, who attended the auction together. The winning bid was submitted by the Channel Group at $310,000, followed by Red Eye at $305,000. The Channel Group was disqualified due to their failure to procure a lease from the Boston Wharf Company. The Channel was offered to the Red Eye Corporation as they were the second-highest bidder, but they turned it down and a second auction would be scheduled. So now we have round two. The second auction. Metamorphosis Group, owned by James Canatanis, wins the bid of $246,000, beating out the Red Eye Group, who stopped at $245,000. When asked if they could step in if there was a problem with Metamorphosis, Don Law would not commit. Also in attendance were Stephen DeSaro and Roland Wheeler, who did not bid in the second auction. The licensing board would not transfer the liquor license to Metamorphosis, ruling that Canatanis, a waiter at Jimmy's Harborside Restaurant, was a front for Chris Ricklitis, who had a previous financial fraud conviction. So Metamorphosis, the winning bidder, was disqualified by the licensing board. I knew the winning bidder, Chris Ricklitis. I'd done business with him. Uh, he uh, had uh, been convicted of uh, white-collar crime. Uh, I think it was bank fraud or something. He lied to a bank and... He claimed he was innocent, but he did serve a few months in jail as a result of that conviction. So he owned a small hotel in Lynn, and adjacent to it was a it was a, a place called Club Chameleon. It was a you know, it was primarily a dance club. They used to do occasional uh, live shows, and we worked together. We actually produced a uh, a, a show. At, uh, it was a dance uh, show on cable television, which was kind of uh, interesting and new at the time. It was called Dance Jam, and Billy Costa, who was a personality at KISS, uh, started, and we were actually the producers of it. And so I knew Chris, and I knew that uh, if he was successful in uh, acquiring the assets of the channel, he would uh, definitely bring me back in. Jimmy Canatanis, the momentary new owner of the channel, was known to Peter Boris. Uh, Jimmy K, Jimmy Katanas. I knew him from Jimmy's Harborside back in the 80s. And uh, he was quite religious. He called himself a reborn Christian, as he felt he was reborn, uh, or born again, whatever you want to call it. And I think the last thing on his mind was that, uh, that he would want to own a rock and roll nightclub. But knowing... Uh, Chris Reclitus from the town of Lynn, which they apparently both lived in, and, you know, from the Greek community over there. Chris apparently convinced them 
to be a straw for the acquisition of the channel. And he did, but, you know, of course it didn't go through. And the rest of the story pretty much speaks for itself. So the way was now clear for Don Law and Patrick Lyons and their Red Eye Corporation to finally claim the channel. But it became complicated. Don Law is quoted in a June 3, 1992 Boston Globe article by Jim Sullivan saying that, quote, Red Eye has withdrawn their hat from the ring and severed their relationship with the Roland Wheeler Group. Wheeler, a bidder in the first auction, became a partner with Red Eye prior to the second auction. End quote. So after all these years, through some uh, digging in the Globe archives and some other archives, I find out that uh, before the second auction, Don Law and uh, Roland Wheeler, who, who was DeSaro's brother, um, had an arrangement to buy the assets of the channel together. No one could tell me what was going to happen next. Was there going to be a third auction? Uh, were there any other bidders that uh, the uh, trustee could go to? Nobody really knew. On July 17, 1992, the Boston Globe reports in a small item in the music section that Channel Climax nears. Prospective channel owner Roland Wheeler and the club's bankruptcy trustee, the Recovery Group, meet today at U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Boston, hoping to finally resolve the fate of the room. Wheeler, who was involved in the previous auctions, has bid $58,000 for the club. We will ask the judge to approve the sale. Uh, bear in mind, just a few months ago, the court had determined that the assets were worth $310,000. On Wednesday, September 2nd, 1992, Roland Wheeler's James Madison Incorporated was approved before the Boston Licensing Board for a license to operate the club. So the licensing authority in the city of Boston and the ABC approved the uh, application of Roland Wheeler, a front for the notorious uh, gangster Fred, a Cadillac Frank Salemi, and they turned down Jimmy Catanas, who was a front man for Chris Ricklitis, who himself had a uh, a minor uh, bank fraud conviction. At the time, the FBI knew that Wheeler uh, and DeSaro were fronts for Salemi. In a November 10, 1993 Boston Globe article, Howard Manley states, quote, Last May, federal prosecutors argued during a bail hearing for the son of reputed New England mob boss Francis P. Cadillac Frank Salemi that the nightclub was a business operated on behalf of La Cosa Nostra and run by people closely associated with the mafia, end quote. The channel reopened on October 30, 1992. On paper, Roland Wheeler was the manager and Frank Salemi Jr. was the assistant manager. In fact, DeSaro and Frank Salemi Jr. were now firmly in control. They owned the club free and clear, and there were several potential sellout national shows booked and promoted by the Don Law Agency. So they started off with a bang. They were doing great. They had several uh, uh, you know, very impressive headliners and some sellouts. Uh, it was clear to me that they had made a deal with Don Law because the acts uh, reflected that. And as a matter of fact, 25 years later at the trial, I found out from testimony that Jack Burke 
before uh, the deal had been made, drove DeSaro and Salemi Jr. to Don Law's office and waited in the car for over an hour while they met. The grand opening weekend for the new channel was a biker's ball on Friday, followed by a Halloween sellout triple bill headlined by the Tom Tom Club that moved to the channel from Don Law's Orpheum Theater. Going forward, things look pretty good. The Don Law Agency had booked a solid lineup, including Alice in Chains, Johnny and Edgar Winter, Henry Rollins, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, even some diversity with Judy Mowat, one of Bob Marley's backup vocalists scheduled for January. But the place just didn't feel the same. There were a few people that uh, stayed on after we left uh, keeping their jobs because they needed them. And I would get regular reports of, of incidents, box office shortages, uh, backstage fights, threats of violence, uh, bands and DJs getting stiffed and threatened, among other things. So Judy Mowat, she was incidentally the last reggae act. She went back to Jamaica and badmouthed the channel because she hadn't been paid, she hadn't been respected. So Kevin Elmer, the black style liner, was there spinning that night. Judy Mowat, who performed at the channel three times as being one of the members of a trio known as the I-3. When Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler left the Whalers, Bob Marley hired the I-3 to be his backup vocalist. So they added a whole female vibe, which was something that um, really changed the sound. So that brings us then to January 10th, 1993. There had been a change of ownership, and during this period, some new people came in. So on that night, Judy launched into her messages of love after a rather tumultuous, enthusiastic reception by the audience who realized who they had on stage. Perhaps about a half an hour, maybe 20 minutes or so into her performance, all of a sudden she stopped. And then she very dramatically went to the front of the stage with a microphone and made an announcement. And she said, I'm not getting paid. So the audience then responded with a bunch of boos and clapping hands, cat calls. No objects were thrown, I'd like to report. Then the lights came up and the show ended. Judy once more said, don't you believe I should get paid? What do you feel about this? And everybody, of course, was totally in support of that. At which point, one of these gangster types came up to me, the lights go on in the whole place, show's done, he tells me, start playing some more music as the DJ, right? Play some selections. So I refused, I packed up, I headed out the door into the cold January night. It was the end of an era of the world music vibes at the channel in Boston. Local shows were also becoming less and less frequent. Bim Scala Bim was one of the last Boston-based bands to headline at the channel on December 31st, 1992. Dan Vitale was there and talks about that night. Our agent, Howie Cusack at Pretty Polly, booked us in there and he said, you know, I don't know much about these new owners. Everybody heard all kinds of rumors, of course, but it's for the channel on New Year's Eve. It's a big deal for us. So we took it. They let me book the openers, so the, the openers for the show were Dig This, Mr. Cranky, the Alstonians, and then Bim Scala Bim. These are all friends in local ska bands. There was about 20 great ska bands in Boston at the time. Pretty much the Boston was one of the leaders in ska music for all of America. We had a hit on FNX, our version of Brain Damage by Pink Floyd. 
the way it turned out, honestly, I really don't think we got paid fairly at all. Nobody can seem to remember what our guarantee was, but we almost always booked shows on points after guarantee. And that place was packed for New Year's. And I remember being pretty disappointed about what our pay was. None of us knew exactly what the hell was going on. And, and one of the things that was distinctive was the, you know, there's a sort of not friendly atmosphere of the management, you know, like a rough scar-faced guy was dealing with us very curtly. That's the way I would put it, I guess. I don't know the guy's name. He was probably one of the managers at the time, but you guys always filled our rider and everybody was always nice. I mean, we knew the sound people and the crew people because they, uh, they were just friends, you know. By the beginning of 1993, uh, music became pretty rare at the channel, especially local music. On weeknights when we usually featured new music review, they would now feature exotic dancers. There seemed to be a lot more goombas than rockers around. By the end of February, it was all over but the crying. In excerpts from Steve Morse's March 5, 1993 Boston Globe article, he said, quote, after sputtering as a live music room in recent months, the channel has officially dropped concerts. The era of the channel as Boston's long-standing roadhouse club is officially over. In total, the new channel stayed operating as a live music venue for four months. On April 29, 1993, what had been the channel was now known as Soiree, a gentleman's club. The last time Roland Wheeler saw his stepbrother, Stephen DeSaro, was on May 13, 1993, at the front bar of Soiree. Wheeler testified at Salemi's trial that DeSaro had told him that he had been summoned to a meeting at the residence of Cadillac Frank Salemi in Sharon, who was the reputed mob boss of the New England Mafia. Wheeler recalled that DeSaro was drunk and seemed particularly nervous. When he didn't see or hear from his stepbrother for a couple of weeks, he assumed Steve had gone to Florida, where he had some connections. On November 8, 1993, Soiree filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. With $550,000 in debt, and the club that had been once known as the Channel was shuttered forever. At the murder trial of Cadillac Frank Salemi, held at the Moakley Federal Courthouse in the Seaport in May of 2018, located less than a half mile from where the Channel once stood, Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy, a former mob associate of the Salemis and Whitey Bulger, testified that he inadvertently walked in on DeSaro's murder taking place at Cadillac Frank's Sharon home. After the deed, which he said was committed by Frank Jr. and aided by Paul Wiedek and overseen by Cadillac Frank, the body was removed via a back door, stuffed in a car, and driven to Providence where it was buried on the grounds of a warehouse. Twenty-three years later, testimony from another Mafia member, Robert DeLuca disclosed the whereabouts of DeSaro's remains to the FBI, and they charged Salemi with the crime. Frank Salemi Jr. died in 1995, but his close associate, who I had been told was his bodyguard, Paul Wiedek, was a co-defendant with Cadillac Frank Salemi in DeSaro's murder trial. The trial was a big eye-opener to me. 
a lot of uh, details became clear after more than 25 years. On September 13, 2018, a jury found Cadillac Frank Salemi and Paul Wiedek guilty of the first-degree murder of Stephen J. DeSaro and sentenced them to life in prison. Epilogue. When muscles and threats didn't work, new players used corruption and connections to gain control. Then, for a short run, about four months, the biggest guns in town, including the top promoter in New England and the head of the La Cosa Nostra, came together in an attempt to make it better. It didn't work. True, they started off with solid bookings and several sellouts in the first weeks of their operation, but it wasn't the same. That channel vibe that permeated the cavernous structure, including respect for the performers, their support staff, employees, patrons. Hey, even booking agents deserve some respect, right? Well, that spirit died. So there you have it, my channel story, as I lived it and to the best of my recollection. You know, told with the help of uh, a lot of good friends and fellow writers on that uh, wild trip that was Boston in the 1980s. 1980s was a great decade for music, particularly rock and roll, which seemed to start to break uh, barriers and boundaries. It emerged from a self-imposed isolation and limitations and embraced uh, different sounds, alternative genres, and uh, even different cultural influences. So... Hip-hop and punk became mainstream, and uh, reggae and ska rhythms started to penetrate sound stages, concerts, and recording studios. It's uh, very gratifying to me that the channel was a small part of that uh, musical and cultural transformation that occurred in the 80s, especially in Boston. From the beginning, the three guiding principles of the channel were diversity, inclusiveness, and above all, independence. So the club's reign as Boston's best live rock ended uh, rather sadly when a number of people in a series of events motivated primarily by greed, supported by corruption in the highest levels, and uh, informed primarily by ignorance, brought the club to a sudden end. For now, my story is told, but of course, it's only a part of the whole channel story. Over the years, it seems everyone that I've met that uh, went to the channel or worked at the channel or performed there has a story, sometimes multiple stories. I've been told that some of these events have been life-changing and often recalled uh, quite vividly even decades later. You know, back in the day, Going to the channel was a lot more than just seeing a great concert. It wasn't just the energy on the stage and the connection that you had with the performers. It was the people around you, the vibration of the floor from those two gigantic bass bins on either side of the stage. It was the smell of the stale beer and the sweat on a hot sellout night. The black starkness of the decor 
where sometimes the audience was as much of the show as the headliner on the stage. There was a vibe, a spirit, if you will, an energy that permeated the place when you went there. It was real, and you felt it strongly. So we have all these great stories that people have sent us over the years, and we're continuing to get them. Some of these stories need to be told. A good story not shared becomes an emotional burden. It has to be told. Which brings us to Boston Venue Season 2, Channel Visions, which will share some of these stories along with some music and commentary from that era from people that were there and some who are still around with the channel community and the world at large. So consider being a part of uh, Boston Venue Season 2. Share your story with us. Go to Boston Venue, the channel story on Facebook or on the web, thechannelstory.com. Submit your story and let's share it with the world. This is our final episode of Season 1, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Boston Venue Season 2, now in production. Channel Visions. Episode 1, Emotional Baggage. Coming soon to your favorite pod station. Subscribe to be notified. Music featured in this episode is by Wargasm, New Models, Bim Scalabim, and the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers, Casey Lindstrom, Steve Marullo, Peter Boris, Kevin Aylmer, and Dan Vitale. Boston Venue, The Channel Story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers, David Ginsberg and Jennifer C. Boris. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Learn more on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue The Channel Podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories. If you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it. Channel Vision, our live streaming COVID-fueled concert series, is available on our Facebook page and helps benefit the Boston Venue Unity Fund, set up to help local artists dealing with the pandemic. To donate, please visit bostonvenueunityfund.org.